This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. This Sunday marks the 60th anniversary of Newt Minow's famous speech calling TV a vast wasteland, inspiring the creator of Gilligan's Island to name the boat the SS Minow. I spoke with Newt and his daughter Nell about the speech, his Presidential Medal of Freedom, and how the collapse of the Fairness Doctrine tragically created today's era of divisive fake news. Good to be here. Thank you. Mr. Minow, you, you know, you served in World War II, law school at Northwestern. I know you were assistant counsel to Adlai Stevenson. Talk about when you got that appointment from, from Kennedy to be chair of the FCC. Well, I was uh, only 34 years old, and um, Bob Kennedy and I had become friends in the 56 Stevenson-Eisenhower uh, campaigns. And uh, I think the Kennedys uh, knew that I was deeply interested in the development of television, which was still quite new at that time. And um, I had uh, been a big fan of Jack Kennedy starting in the 50s when he first was elected uh, to the United States Senate and uh, urged Stevenson in 56 to choose him as his running mate. Uh, that didn't work out, but it led eventually to Steve, to Kennedy getting the nomination for President 60 and um, asking me to join the administration. And even though uh, we didn't have much money and we were, uh, it was a difficult thing to do, but we packed up my, my wife and three children and moved to Washington and this was our second time there. I'd been a law clerk at the Supreme Court 10 years before. But this was uh, the great adventure. And uh, a great adventure it turned out to be. Um, let's remind our listeners really fast of the, the speech we're talking about in 1961. It was called Television in the Public Interest. Uh, the famous buzzword there was where you called it a vast wasteland. Explain what caused you to call it that vast wasteland. You know, the state of television at the time with game shows and cop shows and the like. Well, let's go back a day before the speech. Okay. Uh, the National Association of Broadcasters was having its annual convention in Washington. Uh, and uh, President Kennedy was invited to speak on the day before I was to speak. And the president invited me to go with him to uh, come to the White House <clears throat> and drive together to the, uh, to the convention, which was at the old Wardman Park Hotel. And as I was waiting outside the Oval Office, uh, President Kennedy came out and he said, you know, he said, I've got the first astronaut, Commander Shepard and his wife with us, we're gonna go to Congress. What do you think about taking him to the broadcasters convention as well? <laughs> 
And I said, that would be a great thrill for everybody. So the president said, well, give me a minute. I'll, I'll work this out. You wait here because I want to talk to you. A few minutes later, he came out. He said, it's all set. Now come with me. He said, I want to change my shirt. He took me upstairs to the living quarters and he started to change his shirt. And he said to me, what do you think I should say to the broadcasters? And I said, uh, I think, Mr. President, you ought to tell them what a great public service broadcasting provided yesterday or two days ago when our first astronaut went into space was covered live on radio and television. So everybody in America could see it. And unlike the Soviet Union, where you never know what happened in a space shot, we have an open society and the broadcasting is central to it. The president didn't say anything, didn't say that's good or that's bad, said nothing. We met back, we drove together with the vice president and the shepherds to the convention. President, no notes, got up and gave a absolutely perfect five or 10 minute speech saying basically that the broadcasters had done this great public service and educated the country about the space missions. And the president uh, left to great applause. My speech the next day, that's <laughs> the reverse reaction. <laughs> yeah, those are big shoes to follow if he's speaking the day before. That's amazing that, that Kennedy would uh, be your um, opening act. Um, so, uh, but an excerpt from your speech was, when television is good, nothing, not the theater, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. Explain what you meant by that at the time as TV stood, you know, in, in 61. Well, television at that time consisted of um, some cities had uh, only one television station. Uh, some cities, small cities, had no, had no television stations. There were only two and a half networks. There was no public television. There was no cable television. There was no satellite television. It was a new medium and uh, was growing very quickly. Color television was just really arriving. and. Uh, to me, the, the children were being badly shortchanged by not having adequate children's programming. There were too many commercials. There were, it seemed to me, uh, not enough uh, educational. There were not enough news. News, the network news was 15 minutes and that was it. So I felt that this great gift this great technology was being wasted. And that's what really I meant by saying the vast wasteland. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, is, and you meant, you said a couple minutes ago that um, the reaction to Kennedy's was, you know, very positive, but the reaction to yours was a little more <laughs> mixed. Uh, I'm sure um, Hollywood and TV execs were probably rocked by that, I know. Is it true Gilligan's Island named the boat after you? Are you the SS Minnow too? Like, is that part of uh, the backlash? <laughs> yes, uh, Sherwood Schwartz, who was the guy behind Gilligan's Island, didn't like my speech. <laughs> he sent me a note, he said he was gonna name the, the boat after me because the boat sunk. <laughs> On my 90th birthday, my law partners gave me one of the lifeboats, life lifesavers uh, that was on the boat, which I've since given to the Chicago History Museum, but that's a great treasure. And I became friends of Sherwood Schwartz later, and we 
had a good laugh together. <laughs> I love it. The minnow would be lost. That is you. Um, awesome. Well, uh, let me bring in Nell really quick. Um, where where are you during all this, Nell? I know you said you were, I guess you were a kid when, when you moved in, into D.C. Do you remember watching this speech? Do you remember hearing of the buzz about it? Or were you just a kid being a kid? I was a kid being a kid. I was nine years old. The most important thing to me was that after he gave the speech, he then signed the original license for WETA, Washington, D.C.'s public TV station. And then he got on a plane and came back to Chicago because we were still packing up to move and came to my brownie father-daughter dinner. And then he turned around and came back. So uh, we did know a little bit about the impact of the speech because he was on the cover of Newsweek and there were a lot of political cartoons about him. And so we did get you know, some of the uh, blowback of, about it, but mostly we got people like my friends at school would say, tell your dad, I like this TV show and not that TV show. And we should do more of this and less of that. <laughs> yeah, they, they think your dad's some sort of kingmaker for TV. If they just right. go to, to his daughter now, then, then you know she can pass it up the chain. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good point you mentioned about WETA. You know, we um, and that, that's one of the and thank you for your service, sir, because you know we wouldn't have you know all those great you know PBS things and Ken Burns and I know you helped to start up funding for Sesame Street and the Commission on Presidential Debates like so many things we take for granted uh, you helped usher in so I just wanted to say thank you for that first of all. Well you're more than welcome it, 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 this has been a central part of my life and I, I think today uh, if you are a television viewer which I am I, I'm a television junkie you have wide, wide choice, which is one of the main things that I think we aim to achieve. Absolutely. Now, um, bringing it back to you know the FCC part of it, um, I want to dive into the fairness doctrine and how we miss it today. But first, bare bones it. You know, explain to maybe our listeners who might not be familiar with it. What was the fairness doctrine? It was from 1949 to 87. But explain exactly what what its mission was. The fairness doctrine was a policy adopted by the Federal Communications Commission, which had two parts. First, encouraging broadcasters to cover controversial issues. And second, when the controversial issues were covered, that they would be given not just one side, that there'd be a balance with the different views of that issue. Uh, that policy, I think, was very important. And I'm sorry that it has been abandoned because now I think our country is so badly, badly divided. And one of the basic reasons for that division is that people don't hear both sides. People on some uh, television networks only cover one side of an issue. And unfortunately, that has led, I think, to a lack of consensus in America, which is, I think, a very dangerous thing in a democracy. Yeah, it's, 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 it's such a good point. Um, I know when it ended in uh, 87, I guess, under President Reagan, um, Explain why that was so devastating. I mean, like you're saying, it's sort of, we used to all have a, a basis of facts to work from. And yes, you could be you could be conservative or liberal. You could be a Republican or a Democrat and you would have that back and forth debate, you know, Reagan and Tip O'Neill go have beers afterwards, whatever. But at least you were working from a shared common set of facts that we could all agree on that were, you know, delivered from 
Cronkite or Murrow or whoever we were watching on the news. Um, explain why it was so devastating when that came to an end in 87 and uh, sort of brought about the, the dangerous rise of cable news, talk radio, creating two silos of information that basically have Americans living in two alternate realities now. Well, I think uh, Pat Moynihan, the uh, great senator from New York, Pat Moynihan said it best. He said, this is a free country. Everyone is entitled to his or, own, his or her own opinions, but no one is entitled to their own facts. Uh, we, as you point out, had a, a, a understanding of a common set of facts. If you don't agree on what the facts are, it's impossible to, uh, to form a, a, a balanced opinion. And today we have people living under two sets of facts. Uh, we have even people who uh, say, well, it's okay to have an alternate set of facts. Well, we can't have an alternate set of fact is a fact. And we've abandoned that to the great risk, it seems to me, the future of this country. Yeah, I mean, the, the phrase you just mentioned, alternative facts, along with, quote, fake news, those two phrases came about in the past four years. It's been a, really a decade, really. I guess it's not just been four years. Birtherism was one of those alternative facts, a.k.a. a lie, 10 years ago in 2011. And, uh, and then Stop the Steal is a lie, alternative fact. So talk about how the, the past four years really, really, I think, just shattered all, all norms into, I mean, we're left to pick up the pieces now. Well, I'm, I'm a, a Democrat, but I have great respect for the Republican Party. And I hate to see what's happened to the Republican Party, because we need, to, in, in our democracy, we need two strong parties. And I admire greatly our young congressman from Illinois, Congressman Kissinger. Kinziger, who is asking the Republican Party to return to its basic principles and to not allow the people on the far, far right extremes to dominate uh, the Republican Party. Uh, we, uh, our, this is the greatest country in the world and it's because we believe in our constitution and I think we've got to go back to believing in it. And that means believing in facts. Agreed. I saw an article a couple of weeks ago that really, really disturbed me where Fox News can the two decision desk managers, uh, Bill Salmon and Chris Steyerwald, the ones that called Arizona for, um, for now President Biden, um, both those people lost their jobs. Maybe I could see them getting fired or forced into retirement if they wound up being wrong, but they were actually right. Um, so they got canned. And then I believe they're turning its 7 p.m. time slot into an opinion show. So now I think it's a dead even 50-50 split of hard news during the day, I guess, but mostly all opinion in prime time when most people are you know, watching after dinner or whatever. I mean, does that trouble you now? Like, Can viewers differentiate opinion from fact when literally there's a 50-50 split? split of what you're airing on a network? They should have to change the name. They shouldn't call it Fox News anymore. They should call it Fox Fantasy because that's really what it is. And when you say, but Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity are saying things that are actually not true, provably not true, they respond, oh, it's just opinion. But as my dad said, there's a difference between opinion and facts. So I think it is very, very troubling. I don't care if they put the word 
commentary at the bottom of the screen, people do not know the difference. It's still called Fox News and they take it very seriously and all of the data show that. So I think, I think it is very troubling. Meanwhile, Fox News is facing competition from even wackier places that are even less under any kind of control like Newsmax and uh, One News, which is run by the Russians and nobody seems to be able to differentiate all of that. So the question is, and my dad is currently working on an article about this, what can the government do? Can the government, we do have the first amendment, people are allowed to say whatever they want, but they're not allowed to shout fire falsely in a crowded theater. And the question is, have we gotten to that point? Absolutely, yeah, the what can we do um, is, is the question. Um, is it possible to bring the fairness doctrine back or what's the avenue? Well, Congress is gonna be dealing, of course, the biggest issue now is, is not so much with television as it is with social media. And Congress is going to be dealing with that this year. It's going to be a great debate in this country. But I think Nell said it best. Justice Holmes at the Supreme Court decided years ago that you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater, even with the First Amendment. You cannot yell fire in a crowded theater. Well, we're in a crowded theater right now, a very crowded theater. And I think there has to be some action taken soon before we explode in this country with people not agreeing on what the facts are. As objective news station, WTOP, let me devil's advocate the, the thing that I threw out about Fox News. What's the devil's advocate of that? I mean, I guess there are the Rachel Maddows and, and stuff like that. Um, Brian Williams fabricated with that one story or Dan Rather, was there, they made that movie about it. Rather's doing pretty well with his Twitter followers these days. But do you think any of that stuff sort of gave ammunition to the Fox News folks to say, haha, see, you know, they're, it's all, they're against you? Well, absolutely. And, and with with Fox News, one of the things that's troubling is not just that they say things that are provably wrong, but the context they provide. They barely covered, for example, the January 6th insurrection because it doesn't fit their narrative. And you can say, well, they didn't say anything inaccurate about it, but that doesn't mean that they covered it accurately because it was a big story and they didn't cover it. So- Compared uh, to Benghazi, right? So. Exactly, exactly, as opposed to Benghazi. And, you know, or, you know, Hunter Biden as opposed to Jared and Ivanka. Um, so the, the selection of stories is just as slanted as the stories themselves. And so I, I think that's, that's very troubling. You know, I love WTOP because it gives you the straight story and it gives you nothing but the straight story, which is wonderful. Uh, but, but right now um, we don't have enough sources like that. And there are some emerging, they're trying to do that. There's NewsGuard, which gives you an evaluation of all the sources that you're looking at, even on Twitter, they'll tell you whether somebody is citing a reliable source or not. But I think what I would like to see is a statement coming from uh, Biden or Harris saying, look, I'm not telling you who to believe. I'm telling you, whatever you listen to, check it out. Just check it out. Just find out, you know, here are some things you should look at. Do they correct themselves when they make a mistake? Do they name their sources? Do they link to the original documents? Those are things that will help you know whether these are reliable or not. 
That's such a good point. We need we need fact checkers like that because especially on social media, you know, they'll just share things that you're you're just like, can you please fact check this before you share this link? It's clearly bogus. Yeah. But um, Mr. Minow, what do you make of sort of the rise of social media? You know, sharing sort of false articles like that. I mean, you were on the cusp of you know with with television being a vast wasteland back when that was a brand new medium. Now you've you've lived long enough to see this whole new beast arise where social media can be an even bigger vast wasteland. Um, the president got kicked off of Twitter and the like, but what, what do you make, what do you make of this, this new vast wasteland? Well, I think it's changing the world and in, 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 in obviously that there are great advantages to it, but it's, it's also changing the world in some bad ways. As Nell said, I go back to Justice Holmes. There are certain limits, it seems to me, even I, even on speech, when it comes to violence, when it comes to hate speech, and it, it seems to me some lines can be drawn that that say this is this has gone too far. I think you're going to see uh, evidence where social media provoked provoked and encouraged violence. That cannot be the future of this country. Uh, and as I say, I, I, Nell has got it right. Uh, she's a great believer in the First Amendment, but she also realizes that the First Amendment, as Justice Robert Jackson said in, a, in an opinion of the United States Supreme Court, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. <laughs> It's so true. And you, you hear people, you know, for instance, the president's Twitter getting banned. You'll hear people on the far right saying, oh, it's cancel culture and it, they're limiting freedom of speech. But, you know, the, the president had a really long leash there. I mean, he said a lot of things, many years of free speech there. That's true. But you got to remember, First Amendment applies to government in, infringement of, of speech, right. not to private actors like Twitter. Everybody who's got a Twitter account, and I have five, signs an agreement before they give you an account saying, I will abide by your rules. And they're allowed to enforce those rules. And Republicans, when they have not losing their minds, are generally in favor of private enterprise being able to make private contracts. So that's not it. On the one hand, you know, I would say maybe a couple of times a month, I will come across something on Twitter that is obviously a violation of their rules, and I'll report it. Most recently, someone who is uh, writing really shockingly anti-Semitic uh, material on Twitter, and I'll report it, and Twitter will get back to me and say, thank you very much, we banned them. And I'm like, why am I the cop on this? Right. Why do I have to come across this and read this and report it to you? Yeah, no, it's such a good point. And I, what, what, what I want people to realize, and I try to tell them every time I get a chance is, that's not infringing on free speech. That's free market. That you know what I mean. That's the market saying, "No, you violated our terms of agreement." This private company can kick you off of this service. I mean, it's not Russia where you're getting jailed or killed for what you say. It's still America. You have the right to say it. Just you're not allowed to say it on this platform if you abuse. And you notice the the people who are complaining about cancel culture are doing it in the most widely distributed media that we have. They're doing it on television. They're doing it in the pages of the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. So you can't complain about being silenced if you are in fact being able to complain about it. Exactly. Um, now, as a movie critic, what, <laughs> we gotta get a movie question in here. Um, what movie do you think predicted this entire fairness doctrine exploding into what we are today? 
Well, there's always idiocracy, <laughs> which turned out to be far more accurate than we than we expected. What movie comes to your mind? You know, you had Andy Griffith in uh, A Face in the Crowd, The Rise. That's of a God. great one. Um, yeah. I thought Network just totally predicted yeah. it, you know, in 76. In no one can say Hollywood didn't warn us about this in the 70s before, you know, before it, the Fairness Doctrine ended in the 80s. Um, Mr. Minow, how about you? You called TV a vast wasteland back in the day. Um, and we've detailed the many ways it still is. But um, on the po- on a positive note, what is your favorite show either today or ever? You know that 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 defies the idea of a vast wasteland. That 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 proves that TV is is a powerful positive source as well. Well, my favorite um, program on uh, commercial television is CBS Sunday Morning, which I think is is the best. 90 minutes covering what's going on in the world. Favorites on public television or anything Ken Burns does, uh, which I think is, should be re- almost required uh, viewing. Uh, and of course for children, Sesame Street can't be beat. Uh, I, I, I believe for sports, you've got, if you're a sports junkie, you've got sports 24 hours a day. If you're a movie junkie, you've got movies 24 hours a day. I happen to be a nut on old movies and love Turner classic movies, as does Nell. Certainly Nell writes the best reviews of anybody. <laughs> I asked Nell for her opinion. She's, in my, in my view, she's always, always 100% <laughs> right. What's a movie that daughter to father recommended that you might not have seen otherwise that Nell, that you remember recommending to your dad that he loved? Well, uh, I think it was actually my daughter who got my parents into Downton Abbey, which they really, really liked. And uh, I recommended, I don't know if you remember this, dad, but I recommended a movie called Keeping the Faith with Ben Stiller and uh, that he that he liked very much. Awesome. Well, in closing, I do want to mention your Presidential Medal of Freedom at the White House from uh, President, uh, former President Barack Obama in 2016. Um, explain how exciting that was. Um, and I'm, I'm sure a man like yourself doesn't need the validation, but it, it has to feel feel good. Well, it was the greatest honor you can get as, as, an, uh, as an American. And to get it from President Obama... Uh, even though it was in the closing months of his uh, service in, in the White House, was a special thrill. And most of all, the thrill was having my entire family there. Uh, in fact, the picture on my computer uh, at the beginning is a picture taken in the White House uh, with the president, with the vice president, who is now the president, and our family, when the day we got the medal. And there's the other part of it, of course, was who got the medal with us. It was such an extraordinary group of diverse uh, people who've contributed so much to our country. So it was the thrill of a lifetime. I have to tell you, Jason, that one funny thing that happened that day was that while we were waiting for the ceremony to begin, one of the other uh, recipients of the medal was Lorne Michaels, the founder of Saturday Night Live. And my father said to him, I think you owe the Presidential Debates Commission some royalties because you've done so well with us over the years. You know what he said to me? He said, we we couldn't afford it. 
<laughs> That's great. What what remind me was that the year was that that was that that last final you know in December? Yeah, I think I yeah I covered that one. That was the one with Bill Gates, Michael Jordan, Bruce Springsteen, yes, yes. Uh, Robert Redford, Tom Tyson, generous. <laughs> <laughs> um, everybody, Diana Ross, everybody you could imagine was there that day. It's everybody. It was unbelievable. Robert De Niro. It was yeah. unbelievable the amount of talent that was in that room that day, and you were one of them, sir. So that that's unbelievable. Well, it was. And it, Tom I, Hanks. Don't forget Tom Hanks. It might be the greatest collection of talent in a single room I can ever think of. So, <laughs> um, well, thanks so much for doing this. Before you leave, Jason, I want to say one word about WTOP. Go for it. When I was at the FCC. Uh, Phil Graham uh, has the Washington Post and he had WTOP and Phil Graham and I worked together to build the first communication satellite mm. and um, WTOP it seems to me is one of those great great stations which understands what fairness is and presents all sides. I appreciate you saying that. And um, speaking of satellite, I think the perfect way to close it is uh, a quote Nell shared with me one time. Didn't you say something about why satellite? I can't remember. Was it Kennedy asked you about uh, what satellites more than people? Yeah, President Kennedy once said to me, why are you bugging us so hard about the communication satellite program? And I said, Mr. President, communication satellites are more important than sending a man in a space. And the president said, well, why? And I said, well, communication satellites send ideas, and ideas last longer than people. It's the perfect place to leave it. Hey, uh, Nell Minow, Newton Minow, thank you so much. It's an honor. I've been wanting to have this talk for a long time. We finally had an excuse to do it. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this on WTOP. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Nell. Bye, Dad. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.